I ended up going a total of 30 months without a paycheck. We took our bank account down to $600. We had two kids in full-time daycare. Uh, we sold our house in order to have a little bit of money and moved into an apartment to make this whole thing happen. I think we were spending $2,700 a month on daycare, $1,500 a month on rent. And then there was all the other costs <laughs> beyond that. They were just wiping out our bank account. So that was my context as I stepped into like co-founding this company. And by the way, I think the last part of this is you got my wife sitting there being like, hold on a second. Like, why did you just go to business school so that you could start a company and make zero dollars? Like, what, what was the point of this? My guest today is Brad McGinnity. He is the chief revenue officer at a company called 15.5, a performance management software company. And he and I had a chance to be part of the same men's group where I learned his story. And in this conversation, we reflect on his entrepreneurial journey, but also how he's pushing himself physically, the tactics he uses to invest into relationships, to understand the priorities of relationships. So enjoy this conversation with my friend, Brad McGinnity. Welcome to the Become a Provider podcast, a show about how people bless and protect others and how you can do the same. I'm your host, Justin Thomas. Let's begin. So Brad, I always like to start these episodes by sharing how the guest has provided for me. So can I share a quick story? Ooh, pressure. Yeah, uh, yeah. we're going to go with yes. I don't think I can say no to that. So let's, let's say yes. <laughs> And this may come as a surprise to you, but I think it's going to help introduce you to the audience is that when we met, we were working at this co-working facility in downtown Durham. You have all these startups. I didn't know you, but of course I knew of you for a couple of reasons. One is that you're just a well-known guy. It seems like a, a well-liked guy, wherever you are. You were helping to lead one of the premier startups in our city. Like it was the, you guys were the poster child of growing very rapidly. And so I'd see you around and specifically I'd see you doing stand-up meetings with some of your staff, like in random places. And I'd be like, oh, there's that guy. There's that, there's that Brad guy. He's that cool guy hanging out with, with all of his employees in random spots as I'd go in and out. But we had a chance to connect when we both joined Tim Oakley's mentoring group. And you came up to me and said, hey man, I'm looking forward to getting to know you more. And at that time, I actually didn't know that you're part of the group and that I'd been selected. There was an email that had been sent out. And so I, I looked a little bit like a deer in the headlight. I said, oh, cool. What are you talking about? He's like, oh, we're part of Tim's group together. And I said, oh, it's going to be awesome. And, and so I thought, oh, I'm finally going to get to know this cool guy in this co-working environment to see what his story is. And during the group, I had a nickname for you, and that is Rumi, because we had a weekend retreat and we were assigned as roommates. I just loved seeing how you didn't play the stereotypical role, the cool kid. Of anyone in the group, you were always extremely vulnerable, very honest, and provided some of the, the quotes that still stick with me six, seven, eight years since we were in that group together. So thank you for providing for me of shattering that stereotypical, here's a cool guy, the popular kid in the co-working environment to someone who's just trying to be earnest and genuine and willing to be vulnerable. And so that's my intro to you, Brad. Well, thank you so much for those compliments. At some point, you'll have to send me over those quotes. Maybe they'll be meaningful to me as an opportunity to, to learn some of the things that, that have influenced others. And I'll probably you know, be positively influenced by them, I suppose, at some point too. But yeah, thank you for saying that. I really, really appreciate that. That means a lot. And, and to pick on that thread for a second, as you know, I know we're going to talk a lot about these different elements of where I've been provided for and kind of what it means in the ways that I might try to provide for others in my life today. 
Brene Brown, who we all know from Daring Greatly and her, her famous TED Talk, the way she describes the definition of vulnerability, I think is really, really awesome. She describes vulnerability as a place of being unprotected and exposed. And we think of vulnerability oftentimes as a place of weakness, but she argues the exact opposite, that to be vulnerable requires a great deal of strength and courage. I think that one of the opportunities that we all have as leaders for those around us, whether it be for our own children in a lot of ways, uh, or if you know the roles that we're in in companies and things like that, is to lead by choosing to be vulnerable. We're in this society where everybody feels like they have to be buttoned up and put together. And you know, you've got your Instagram personality out there, which is like totally not the real life that you're experiencing. It's the it's the highlights of, of one's life because we all put our best moments out on social media. And so to have people around you who will have the courage to be vulnerable and kind of set the example that, that that's an okay thing and a good thing, I think it'd be really important. It's hard at times for sure to do that kind of thing. And I don't know how much I like try to be vulnerable versus I'm just too verbose and can't keep my mouth shut at times. But I do think that that's an opportunity for us to set a good example for those around us in a way that will allow them to grow a little bit more by providing that example for them. And just one like quick place that I love that shows up in my personal life around this idea is I apologize to my kids a lot. When I make a mistake, and my kids are 11, 9, and 6. I've got three daughters. And when I screw up, I go to them and I say, I'm sorry. I made a mistake. I should not have done the thing that I did. Will you please forgive me? You know, you're the father talking with your young child, right? It's a little bit counterintuitive, but it sets an example for them around like, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. That's okay, it's okay to, to admit your mistakes, have some grace with one another and the people that are in your life and be vulnerable in that way. So I think it's an important thing that we all have an opportunity to do in our lives. And so we tend not to start in that place of being that dad willing to be vulnerable and to ask for forgiveness from our child. And so what helped shape that habit in your life and your parenting? That's a great question. I don't know that I have a good answer for you. I think it might come from is I have always been surrounded by people who I felt like genuinely loved me for me. I had great parents. My best friend is a guy that I've been friends since since I, since I was four years old. He grew up right next door to me. And so, you know, when we're sitting around at 16, 17, 18 years old, being dumb teenage boys, he kind of knew all the stuff. And if he didn't want to be friends with me at that point, he, was a, he would have already bailed on me. And so there's a level of unconditional love that Dan was always able to offer me. And as I stepped into college, I was really fortunate to be in an accountability group with three other guys. Each of them was willing to intentionally step into true exposure and vulnerability. So I've kind of been lucky to have a lot of that modeled for me and combine that with a sense of identity where I'm like, I'm an Enneagram three, I'm a performer, I'm an achiever, I want people to like me. But simultaneously, there's always been this like kind of layer of I'm loved, like I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, gosh darn it, people like me to quote um, Saturday Night Live on that one. I've been blessed to be in communities of people who are willing to do the same thing and have it reciprocated and kind of reinforced as, a, as an important thing to do. And I think we've all grown out of those experiences. I have been rewarded for the vulnerability as opposed to punished for my decisions to be vulnerable at times. Some aren't as fortunate to have people at an early stage say, hey, I love you for who you are and to have those long-term relationships as you've just described. How would you recommend someone to form those deep relationships to actually positively influence their lives and to have genuine community? Yeah, it's really hard. I think the, the first thing is that you like, we go back to Brene, like it's the courage to take the risk to do it first 
as you become friends with somebody, right? Somebody's going to kind of start to inch that relationship forward out of the surface stuff and into the deep and the meaningful that we're all experiencing, right? Like nobody is immune or protected from these deep questions of identity. Who am I? What am I here for? Am I really loved? Am I good enough? Imposter syndrome, like all of these questions every single person is facing. And so then it just becomes this question of, are you going to wait for the other person to take the lead on having those conversations? Or are you willing to take the lead on going to those places? There will be people where you're going to take the lead on going to those places and it is clearly not reciprocated, right? And they don't have an interest in going there and it's going to remain surface. And I think if you can not respond to that a little like some level of rejection. It's not a rejection of you. It's probably kind of their own stuff that they're not willing to go there on their own. If you can kind of take that as not an insult, but then continue to pursue other relationships and continue to seek that out. I think it's important. And I think that you'll get to a place in certain relationships where you, you literally name it. I mean, like in college, we used to joke about the DTR, the define the, define the relationship, right? You're like, you're kind of seeing a girl, you're going out a few times. And at some point you sit down and you have the DTR and it's like, I want to be your boyfriend. I want you to be my girlfriend. Like, I want to make this thing official, the DTR. It's kind of a weird thing to do in your like, in your friend relationships. But, you know, I think back to the accountability group that I did with Scott, Sam and Zeke in college, we like literally named the ground rules of the relationship, we're going to be open and honest with each other. Everything we're going to talk about is going to stay here. We're going to commit to unconditional love. And like, we just named the ground rules. And for you to sit there and have a bit of a weird conversation with somebody who's just like a friend, it's like, I thought we we're just casual friends. Why are we having this conversation? You're having the conversation because when you can set up a little bit more clarity around the boundaries of the relationship and what, the, what each person wants out of the relationship, it sets the safe space to have real relationships with people, which are really rare, but it requires you to step out a little bit and have some guts to go first. I love it. You mentioned in, in high school, some uh, intentional relationships started forming, and that's around the time that your parents got a divorce. And so and share as much as little as you want to about this and the people that helped you get through this. Would you like to reflect on that time of your life and who showed up in your life and how you grew in that season? Yeah. So we'll, we'll rewind here and go back to the, some of the life story stuff. My parents split up. Uh, they got separated when I was a sophomore in high school. I was 15, uh, officially divorced and I was a junior. Coinciding with the timing of this was right as they separated, like a month before sophomore year started, my sister went off to be a freshman down at Clemson University. I grew up in Baltimore and she went down to Clemson 10 hours away. And so I suddenly became like the only child in my in my house. And it was a really weird thing where my parents separated, but they both refused to move out of the house. Dad's in the master bedroom. My mom's in a guest bedroom and I'm in my bedroom. My sister's 10 hours away. And my parents like wouldn't really talk to each other during the day. When they talked generally, it was civil, but it was mostly me kind of being in this house with two parents who, I mean, they were separated, they were divorcing and it was not an amicable divorce and separation of, of parting of ways. I ended up in, in large part in like a survival mode uh, as a 15 year old kid of just like, how do I make it every single day? And I think th this is the time in my life when I've, I think that I struggled because I had to survive. It, it forced me to not feel as much. And so like, even today, I still struggle with like feeling my feelings. I think a lot of that came out of this just survival mode I had to be in. I was lucky at my church to have this like amazing youth group. It was a, it was a larger church, 2000 or so members. And we had this 350 person youth group. And I got to be in a small group my sophomore year led by a guy named Matt Perry. And then his best friend took over our group uh, when I was a junior. His name was Josh Itso. And Matt and Josh were both 
just phenomenal role models for me. They were both, I don't know, 24, 25 years old. Both were the life of the party. You walked into any room and like, it was clear Matt and Josh were like the coolest guys in the room. Josh was a college baseball player who went in and played a little bit at the minors. And Matt was just the most lively, energetic person you've ever seen in your entire life. And both of those guys, for whatever reason, they, I mean, they were just volunteer youth group leaders. Like they both just invested in me and cared a lot about me. And I think that they knew I was going through a hard time and they knew that I was somebody who needed a little bit more attention. You know, everything from like a meaningful conversation and like, how are you really doing, Brad? To just like hanging out at their apartment, watching a football game and uh, going to play paintball and, and, you know, just stupid stuff. They were not in the relationship because they needed something from me. They were just there to be a friend and just provide some love and to have role models like Matt and Josh, who passionately loved the Lord, loved kids, loved others, and loved me regardless of what I did. And those dudes had some checkered past, like there wasn't anything that I was going to do. They hadn't probably done themselves (laughs) or seen. So there was no surprising them. And so it was a really important and, uh, and helpful thing that helped me kind of get through those couple of years. In 11th grade, the summer before 11th grade, my dad ended up moving to Houston. And so I spent the next two years just living with my mom, with my dad in Texas, uh, halfway across the country. And he'd come back once a month, but it just made for a pretty pretty crappy, you know, 10th, 11th, 12th grade of, of high school uh, from a family perspective. Lots of people have worse divorce stories than that one, but certainly not a fun experience I would wish upon anybody. It was amazing to see the people that showed up in your life, whether it was the youth group leaders. And then after high school, you go to college and you make your way to North Carolina at UNC and you have those genuine relationships as well. So that's pretty amazing that just when you needed them, those relationships showed up and then you're willing to show up as well. And I still kind of wonder back, like, I mean, I was in 10th, 11th, 12th grade, like I made, I made stupid high school decisions that kind of anybody makes, but like, I didn't do anything real stupid. (laughs) And I was always like, even as I was doing dumb things, I was like, I'm going to go do something stupid right now. Like it was totally self-aware and like, where I have no idea where that uh, level of self-awareness and self-control came from. It was like, even if I was going to do it, I knew what I was doing. Like I was pretty much in control of the choice that I was making, even if I knew it was bad choice. (laughs) And I, I know I do attribute it, some of it back to just like the stability of, you know, what up until 10th grade had been a wonderful childhood with great parents and um, a great sister and good friends and, you know, good role models. I wonder if you would be the friend that you are now and so intentional and so gracious and so wanting to actually know the lives of your employees, for instance, that we'll get into and you care about that. Mm-hmm. Does that does that stem from that time of just seeing people show up in your life and really taking a genuine interest without having any strings attached? Yeah, I think that that a lot of it comes from that. There's an element, I don't know, I think we in the Christian church have a, a kind of a perpetual struggle with the idea of um, closed groups and intimacy with this like open door of, of welcoming and kind of inviting everybody into it. And, you know, like Jesus picked 12 disciples right? Not 13 or 14 or 15, right? Like he, he had a limit of the people who were going to go with him, but then he had this other group of people who would travel with him. And inside of that, he had kind of like his inner three with Peter, James, and John. And there's some interesting things like my group, my close group of friends from high school, we call ourselves the palm tree. And it's these four other guys. Uh, I got a picture of them in my office right behind me right now to just kind of name like, all right, like we're the five, like we had other friends, of course, we were part of a larger group of friends, but like the five of us, like we're going to be lifelong friends and we are. And then, you know, doing this like accountability thing uh, in college with these three other guys, like it's the four of us and we're still friends today. And then we were part of a larger group of roommates. There's eight of us who lived together in college and one more adopted ninth roommate that we, we kind of added a little bit later on. 
there's a little bit of a tension there, but there also becomes this level of comfort and a sense of belonging. It's going to be us. Like we're the group of people that are going to be friends for a long time together. There's the tension of, of, you know, being opening and welcoming to others and loving of other people, but there's also a sense of safety and belonging of not quite covenant, but like agreement. We're going to be it together. There's a model for that in marriage and in being a parent as well, where you, you do make a covenant and you, you know, I look at my wife, Megan, it's like 23 years old. We looked at each other in front of a whole church of people and said, I'm going to remain committed to you forever, no matter what. There's so much safety in that. And so, you know, there's a clear model for doing that in marriage, but like you can extend that to friendships. Tim Oakley that you and I both know from our radical mentoring group together. He's got a thing he calls the focused you. Like he names the people. You're my guy for life, no matter what. There's no secrets. You know, it kind of gets back to like the define the relationship thing. But I think that there's this opportunity to have a sense of safety and belonging because you name it. You don't have to give it a name like the palm tree or the overlook or something like that. It's kind of a weird thing that happened in my life, but there's by defining it, I think it brings a sense of belonging that allows for more freedom in the relationship to then be yourself. And you know what else is really interesting about that point that you make is this natural tension between you want to have that closed group and that protection, and then you also want to have this open door. I've seen you do a really good job firsthand of I don't know if it was a lunch party, pool party, whatever it may be. So I was throwing a party and in, invited you, Megan, out to a couple of those. You gave me a gift. And one of the great gifts that you gave me was to say, you know, Justin, I love to spend time with you. And we have other commitments and other friend groups that we're investing into. It was such a gracious way of just describing what you just described to our listeners of you've got this group that you're pouring into intentionally. It's kind of this closed group and you're always open to new experiences. Like we were open to the experience with Tim Oakley and doing the mentoring group. And at the same time, you're saying like, but I just can't invest into all these activities that you've lined up for me in my life. And I said, oh, thank you for sharing that. That was such a great demonstration of like a practical way of protecting your time while still honoring me. It was a great to find the relationship Uh, let me down for that particular event. And we've done other events (laughs) since then. And obviously we remain friends now, but I wanted to bring that up as a, just a good example of how you're living this out. So do you remember that conversation or a moment or do you want to reflect on that at all? Yeah, I know. I do remember that. And it's definitely a DTR, right? We define the relationship, but it's almost, it's, it's almost like an inverse of it, right? Like I'm not quite pulling you in as much as maybe I want to push you out a little bit. Like I, yes, I remember that relation. I remember that conversation because I was hard and awkward for me. Um, because I like you a lot and I believe in the things that you were doing. And by the way, like when we joined that Oakley group, we literally signed a covenant. We signed a piece of paper. And, you know, for me to strike that balance of, I want to honor that covenant and that commitment that I have made, which I know is an unusual thing to sign a covenant with a group of people that you're (laughs) being in a relationship with, but that's kind of unique to our, our group that we did. But how do I honor that while simultaneously really honoring the commitments that I've made to my family, to my college roommates. We've got a lot that we do here in our neighborhood over in Raleigh and do all that stuff. And so I can't understate, I think, the importance that it is for all of us. People, I think, to typically talk about it as one of boundaries, but you've got to know what your priorities are. Brad Springer, one of my great friends, always loves to say, to say that you don't have time is bogus. Like It's not true that you don't have time. You have priorities. And how are you going to live out your priorities in the limited time that all of us have? And being really clear with your priorities, I think is so important. And I think the hardest part of that is that it means saying no to things that are typically good. 
Like, how do you say no to something that is good? The pool parties and bringing everybody together, like that is good. I don't want to say no to that. Plus I'm an Enneagram three who cares what other people think about me. And I worry about the rejection of you being mad about that and being mad at me, right? And that's a hard thing for me to personally deal with. So I can't encourage people enough to to have a strong sense of conviction around what their priorities are. Sometimes you'll live it out. Sometimes you'll screw it up and not live according to your priorities. And that's the tension that we all live in and just being a human being. But have clarity because you can't always do both. You can't do everything. You have to make the hard choices. And those hard choices are oftentimes to pick one thing over another, right? I picked my wife, Megan. She's it forever. That means that I rejected the other three and a half billion women in the world or however many there are out there, right? I picked one and she's my wife for life. The other three and a half billion women aren't bad people, <laughs> but Megan's going to be mine, right? And so we got to make those choices to know the priorities, have conviction about it, and to some degree be unapologetic in those choices that we've made, provided that we've been thoughtful and made them with conviction. Well, let's talk about priorities and your story and your career. You get married, you go back, you get your MBA, and you've got this entrepreneurial itch that needs to be scratched. And you co-found a company which led you to that co-working environment that we met. And you experienced tremendous growth and a lot of lessons learned with that. Let's reflect on that season of your life a little bit. I think context is a little bit important to understand my story for a second. So in 2009, I quit my job as an account executive at a company called Bronto Software. My last official day was June 28th, 2009. And it was a Sunday. And I know that because that was the day that my first daughter was born. And then I took off the month of July. And then in August, I started full-time business school at Keenan Flagler at UNC Chapel Hill. And so I'm entering two years of full-time business school with a one-month-old and a wife who's not earning enough money to cover our bills. And I'm on a road to have no paycheck essentially for the next 24 months. And so while I'm in school, um, I co-found this software company called Windsor Circle. I'm the head of sales and marketing. My partner's the CEO. We recruited two technical co-founders to join us as CTO and kind of MacGyver to do everything. And then my second daughter was born a month after I graduated from business school. And as co-founders, we committed to going the first year of our business without salaries because we raised a little bit of capital. So I ended up going a total of 30 months without a paycheck. We took our bank account down to $600 over the course of that 30 months, we had two kids in full-time daycare. Uh, we sold our house in order to have a little bit of money and moved into an apartment to make this whole thing happen. I think we were spending $2,700 a month on daycare, $1,500 a month on rent. And then there was all the other costs <laughs> beyond that. They were just wiping out our bank account. So that was my context as I step into like co-founding this company. And by the way, I think the last part of this is you got my wife sitting there being like, hold on a second. Like, why did you just go to business school so that you could start a company and make zero dollars? Like, what, what was the point of this? And her dream was never to marry an entrepreneur. <laughs> her dream was for me to have a stable job and live within our means and uh, do none of this risky type stuff. So now that we know the context of how you started this company, you land into it, you talked about understanding priorities. So what did you understand about priorities as you begin a company and how do you prioritize goals and hires? And then how do you prioritize your family while you're prioritizing your business? I think a lot of us have some clarity at the big picture of what our priorities ought to be. And then we struggle on a day-to-day -day basis to live it. So, you know, for me, God first, Megan second, kids third, job shows up fourth, friends show up fourth, like somewhere in that world. I think that for me, I was never willing to sacrifice my family for this job, for, for my startup dream. That was always hyper clear. And Megan always knew, I always told Megan that if, if you ever tell me to leave, 
I will leave. And that was an important promise uh, that I had made to her that gave her a sense of ownership in what we were doing and not being a victim of being dragged into this thing. But she really felt like she had some agency as somebody who was supporting her husband and following his dream. So to be clear on those priorities, I think was always really important. It's easy in any startup, right? To overwork um, to some degree you have to, because you, you don't have a big team to rely on to fulfill your dream. But the the startup itself can never become the most important thing. So there's always balance there. And there's a lot of conversations and dialogue around, okay, we're heading into a busy season. I'm going to have to work more, Megan. Like, can you step up a little bit more with these different things around our home in order to support that yes or no, right? And get to an agreement on those kinds of things. I think in the startup, as we were doing it, we raised venture capital financing, which means we spent more money than we made and there's burn and that puts a lot of pressure on the business. And you're always in this tension of valuing people versus performance. And how do you value both people and performance while treating everybody with dignity and not just like some cog in your giant machine? And I was always really clear, at least to myself and hopefully to my team, that I very much cared about and valued the whole of their lives more than anything that they contributed in the business they as human beings were more important to me than they as workers. And so what they are doing in their job only matters in so far as it supports their personal goals and what they're trying to accomplish in their life. You know, as a business leader to know that what I am doing with this company has the opportunity to change people's lives for the positive or for the worse, and to not uh, kind of take advantage of that privilege by treating people poorly in a way that ultimately makes their lives worse. But to use that as an opportunity to really grow and help and develop people, it's an amazing privilege. And with that privilege is some responsibility and one that we don't want to take advantage of. Um, I recently watched Ted Lasso. Have you seen Ted Lasso yet on, on Apple TV? No. Jason Sudeikis, it's awesome. He, he's an American college football coach who goes over to England to run a Premier League soccer team. And doesn't know anything about soccer. And it's a, it's a comedy. It's pretty hilarious. But one of the cool things about Ted Lasso is that he's openly like, I don't care about winning and losing. I care about changing the lives of the men on my team. He's like, I don't care if we win the game. Did you grow and develop? That's what's important to me. I run sales. Like sales is a game that clearly has a scoreboard at the end of every month, every end of every quarter, at the end of every year. Like you hit the number and you won, or you didn't hit the number and you lost. And I know the performance of every member of my team because they all have a score individually against how they did, a, you know, how they performed against their quotas. And I've been asking myself this question of, do I lead in such a way that it makes it clear to my team members, I care more about your individual growth and development than I care about the ultimate success of this company. And by the way, what exactly is my responsibility in that? Am I hired to care more about the individual people on my team or am I hired to create shareholder value? There's tension in all that stuff. Being able to lead your people in such a way that you can win the game while simultaneously helping people to be and become their best selves is something I think about probably on a daily basis. And I think that the ideal, right, is that by caring about people as human beings first so that they can be and become their best selves, they will perform at their best and therefore the company will perform at its best. But you can lose focus and, and get too myopically focused on just the score in a way that really wrecks people's lives if you don't do it right. You've got this scoreboard on the finances is very clear, especially in the sales department and typically in other departments as well, but certainly within sales. And then you know that there's this other scoreboard that is necessary with how your employees are doing to make sure that they're growing. And I love the comparison with that TV show out there. Check it out. That sounds like a good one to look into with that quote, like, hey, did you grow? Did you learn something in this game? Then if so, we achieve something special. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's a TV show. It does not exactly operating the real world. And uh, I won't blow the ending necessarily, but you know, this isn't uh USA versus Russia. And do you believe in miracles? And they win the premier league championship that season, right? Like he's not a good soccer coach. <laughs> You know, it's a challenge for all of us as leaders. And I, and I think that the more that we can get clear on what's important to us individually, go back to that stuff we talked about earlier around like, how do you be intentional about the choices that you're making at the exclusion of probably other good things? Get clear for yourself, work for a business that is aligned with your values. And you've got a leadership team that is aligned with your values. It makes all that stuff so much easier. We've got a responsibility as leaders to take care of our people and taking care of them doesn't just mean like we pay them enough money and, um, you know, treat them nicely in the office. Like taking care of people means supporting the whole of their life over and above the widgets they produce for your business. Balancing that with the fact that at the ultimate, you know, at the end of the day, like you are accountable to keep the business growing and running matters. And there's a little bit extra pressure as a co-founder. So you're not just a leader, you're a co-founder of this company. Tell us about how your co-founder provided for you when you made a big decision about what you're prioritizing and making a transition. So about eight years into the company, um, it was it was time for me to go. The pressures that doing a startup put on my family. Um, by this point, our third daughter was born. And I think my family, my, my wife and three daughters had made a lot of sacrifices for eight years in order for me to follow my dream. It was time for uh, that paradigm to, sh- to, to shift and change. And so I called up Matt, my co-founder, uh, into the conference room and sat down with him and said, it's a hard decision, man, but I got to go. I was kind of prepared for anything from Matt. Matt is an incredibly passionate person. He was very, very passionate about what we were building together. I had really no idea how he would respond to it. I was kind of prepared for any response uh, from Matt. And Matt just looked at me and said, I hear you, I support you, and I love you. To hear that from, he was my boss back at Bronto before we started this company and I went to business school and he's, he was and is the most important professional mentor and a lot of ways, personal mentor that I've had in my business career. And, and a lot of who I am today as a business leader, I owe to Matt. And for him to have that kind of response to me was it's so freeing. It was exactly what I needed to hear, right? It was, it gave me the opportunity to leave the company with freedom and not in guilt and it was already a hard enough decision. And he knew that it was a hard decision and he knew that I didn't make it lightly. And he, he just supported me um, in a way that he didn't have to. It's three and a half years since I left the company. And in all of our conversations since then, he has been nothing but supportive and gracious and my biggest cheerleader uh, in what I'm doing today at 15.5. His just grace. You know, my, my departure was a blow to Windsor Circle. Um, and his support of me, right. And putting me in front of the, the company in some ways it meant a ton to me. So I think, again, there's like a lesson to be learned there, right. For, uh, for all of us as leaders in terms of business leaders, right. In terms of how do we treat the people uh, who work for us when it's their turn, it's their time, uh, to go from the company and how do we allow them to leave with grace and dignity and our support and not with our bitterness and anger that they're jumping off the journey and going and doing something else. And was your co-founder of like the company you started together? If you can do it, like in that relationship, you know, we, we should all be able to do that with the people on our teams. What a powerful moment for you to live through. And I'm sure that will stick with you. And you may be on the other side of that table, right? One day where someone comes to you and maybe that's happened in a different context of, hey, it's time for me to go. And for you to know what that feels like to be nervous, to you know, give the courage to make that big decision. And that's just got to be such a meaningful moment for you in your career. 
Yeah. You know, our at 15.5, our VP of sales last Friday was his last day. And he'd put in notice a couple of weeks earlier. And like Dustin's departure is a blow for me and for 15.5. And the business is bigger than any of us are individually. But I'm, uh, I was kind of open with him. I was like, you know, he told me on a, on a, a Monday, I guess. And I followed up with him on Tuesday. And I was like, hey, man, I just want you to know that I'm not, not mad or angry with you. Then I followed him up with him on Wednesday. And I, <laughs> I was like, Hey, I want you to know, like, I'll get over it. But right now I'm mad at you. <laughs> like I'm, I am mad right now. And it won't always be this way. But right now I am mad. I realized by Friday, two days later, I was actually like misplacing my anger. I was actually mad at some other things that were happening that were kind of impetuses behind Dustin's departure. And so, you know, he and I, we talked for an hour, two nights ago, had a great conversation. He's off to his, you know, week one at his new job and was telling me about all the things he's excited about there. And he gave me some encouragement and support on things we're doing at 15.5. And, you know, at the end of it, he was really clear, like, Hey, can we, can we please keep talking once a month? I really value this, this relationship that we have. And, and I do too, you know, I could have blown that one, could have left it with, with just being mad. And I'm really glad that uh, Dustin is somebody who, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll work together again one day. Thank you for always bringing up practical examples of what you're talking about with it as well. And I, I got to ask, are you currently training for any runs, any marathons? That's, that's something that you've done in the past and another example of how you really try to push yourself, not only professionally, but also physically. So where is that? So right now I'm not training for any runs, but I'm doing something that is really pushing me. And I'm actually really excited about it. This guy, Brad Springer, who I mentioned a little bit earlier, the one who talks about priorities versus uh, I don't have time. He found these two different programs, one both on the internet, one from the art of manliness, they do these kind of cohorts of, of people to kind of, you know, I can't remember what they call it, but it's ultimately about becoming like some kind of Renaissance man who's well-rounded in all the best ways. And um, this other program called 75 Hard by a guy named, I think named Andy Frischilla. So Brad combined these two different things into uh, a program that he developed. Um, and we don't have a name for it right now. We're, we kind of toy with the name Discipline and Freedom. My wife mockingly calls it Soft 60 uh, coming off of 75 Hard. And so 75 Hard you do for 75 days. Brad and I are doing this thing for 60 days. So it's really cool. We're doing 60 consecutive days where we have to do this bullet point checklist of activities every single day. So we got to drink a gallon of water, no alcohol, work out for 45 minutes, read for 15 minutes, pray or meditate for five minutes, journal for five minutes, and then follow a diet plan. And the diet plan is kind of a choose your own adventure. So I'm already gluten-free. So I went sugar-free on my, my diet plan. We both have to do these things every single day. If either one of us misses on one activity one time, we both go back to day zero. And we have to do it for 60 consecutive days. So I think that today is like day 32 or 33. And the way that I describe it to people is that I'm not doing this program. I have submitted to this program. It's like, I don't have a choice. I have to do this stuff every day or we both go back to zero. And he looked at me one day and he's like, bro, if you set us back to day zero, like I'm never going to forgive you. <laughs> It, the program is kind of right size, right? It's it's something that's doable and manageable on a day to day basis. But like, man, I went, I did a day trip up to Sugar Mountain to go skiing a few weeks ago. Left my house at four thirty in the morning. I got home at twelve thirty at night. I did count the day of skiing as my forty five minute workout. So I maybe cheated on that one, but Brad blessed it before I started. But I had to sit down and read for fifteen minutes, journal for five, and pray for five. At like one o'clock in the morning. And I'm just sitting there like, what am I doing? Like, this is crazy. But I will tell you that I am also loving it. Like the sugar-free, I feel awesome. The mental discipline is being created by this thing. And just this idea of like, you know, I tend to listen to more podcasts and, and listen to more audiobooks than I do read. Audiobooks don't count in this program. Like you got to eyes on words, like you got to read it. You know, I'm 
getting halfway through a book now that's been on my bookshelf for five months and, and uh, it's been pretty stinking awesome. So I'm, I don't know. We'll see how I, I'm, I'm only halfway through. I haven't yet made it to day 60, but I'm kind of thinking about maybe I keep going. I don't know. So anyway, so, so no marathon training happening right now, just this freedom and discipline, which is our working title that I would encourage people to grab an accountability partner and jump in with, with it. It's pretty fun. That's great. Well, I'm so glad we stumbled upon that very significant thing you're doing and a good example and encouragement to us all to take that next level in a relationship and to actually have a focus and a commitment to one another like that really raises the bar and helps define the relationship like we talked about earlier and to be vulnerable. Any last words that you'd like to leave our listeners with to encourage them on their provider journey? Thank you so much for taking some time, Brad. Yeah. One last thing. When you come home from work or you step downstairs from your home office to go you know, hang out with your family and your kids, put your damn phone away. Your phone is like, it is made to be addictive and to distract you from the people that are most important in your life. Like until your kids are in bed, put your phone away, engage with your family and with your kids. It's the highest leverage thing that you can do to be a better father or mother. You change that one thing, which is not a hard thing to change. Just put it in a drawer, leave it at your desk. It's the simplest thing that you can do and you will instantly be a better parent. Thank you for the time. Thank you for the wisdom. And uh, I think that's a wrap. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, this is fun, Justin. I, I love what you're doing. Uh, thank you for your commitment to loving the people around you through your book and through this podcast and through uh, the fellowship that, you, that you're leading. It's a, it's a great example to all of us and really appreciate being with you today. It was fun. Thank you for listening to this episode. Before you take off, I wanted to ask if you would enjoy getting a short email from me every Wednesday called A Kind Word. It provides a little positivity to help you get over hump day. It's free and shares highlights of things that have brought me joy over the past week. If you want to start getting a kind word from me, simply sign up at justinthomascoaching.com by entering your email address and you'll get the next one. That's justinthomascoaching.com. Thanks again for listening. Bless and protect. Mm-hmm.